Even though the Democrats' one-party rule for the past two years resulted in a government that was detached from its citizens, an education system that confused our kids, left-wing politically driven censorship, excessive use of force, massive trouble at the border, rising crime, and a decline in our nation's security, the Republicans only eked out a small majority in the House, and they did not regain the Senate. How do you have everything in your favor and blow a lead that bad? That is next. Hey, welcome back to The Barry Ferris Show, where we talk about culture, politics, and leadership. I hope you're doing well. Today, we will examine why the Republicans didn't win by nearly as much as they should across the board. I mean, there's some bright spots, of course, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Ohio, and even New York. And Republicans ended up with 3 million more votes overall nationwide than the Democrats. But... We could have and we should have won the governorships of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, and we should have won the Senate races from Nevada, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, and we should have won more House seats, but we didn't. What happened? It isn't like uh, it was a bad time to be a Republican. I mean, the Democrat president had super low approval rating, still does. The popular vote went uh, towards Republicans. The Democrats' one-party rule for the past two years has not been good for people. I mean, whether you're talking about inflation or censorship or education or massive trouble at the border, rising crime, uh, crime rates have just gone up everywhere, or a decline in our nation's security. I mean, it all pointed to a Republican landslide. I mean, you would think that the real clear politics prediction just a few days before the election would have materialized. A Senate majority of 53 and a House majority of over 230. But that isn't what happened. They're still counting the close districts in the House, but the best Republicans can hope for is about 222. And even if the Republicans win the runoff election in the Senate, it'll be tied at 50-50, which means Democrat control since the vice president breaks the tie. It's like a football team that has a 28-point lead in the first quarter, mostly by the bad play of the other team. And then it barely wins. 28 to 25 just by a field goal. How do you have everything in your favor and blow a lead that bad? Now, it's not all bad news for the Republicans. They did win the House. And if they get nothing more done than just stopping the Democrats from doing bad stuff, that will be an improvement. Republicans exceeded expectations in many races. And there's much to be learned here. In a nutshell, the candidates that gave their constituents something to grab onto that they could vote for versus just things to vote against won. The guys who were looking back lost. It's kind of funny, though. I mean, the House put out a positive four-part commitment to America. It, it was good. Build an economy that's strong, an America that's safe, a future that's based on freedom, and a government that's accountable. I mean, those are pretty good commitments. I even did some podcasts on them, the details of them. The number one comment, though, that I got back is, those all sound good, but how come I never hear my congressman talking about them? I mean, he's always just railing against the Democrats. You need more than that for any competitive statewide race. To win the general election, you need to reach at least some moderates and independents, and that's true of a lot of districts. Otherwise, there's just not enough votes. 
Before we look at how the Republicans squandered their lead, let's look at where they won big. I mean, you can always tell how convincing a win is by how quick the mainstream media will call the race, especially if it's for a Republican. They called Florida three minutes after the polls closed. Florida was considered a battleground state as early as 2020. I mean, their Trump just won by 2.2%. And in 2016, he just won by 1%. When DeSantis came in and put together some election integrity rules that helped improve Trump's outcome. In 2018, Governor DeSantis won by just 0.4%. Just a few thousand votes out of 8.2 million cast. In fact, on the eve of the race, out of 10 pollsters, seven were saying it's going to be a toss-up, and three predicted a slight Democrat victory. Not in 2022. Everybody forecast a DeSantis victory. The, the difference between the two is really stunning. It's a very short period of time. In 2022, he won by 1.5 million votes. It's, it's an amazing landslide for a state that was so purple just a few years ago. What changed? Well, he governed from strong freedom principles. He opposed onerous constraints, <clears throat> and uh, he remained true to his conservative beliefs. And the moderates and the independents in the state of Florida were able to witness firsthand the results. You could compare those to blue states, and his governance worked. He said Florida's where woke dies. He was pretty unafraid of the left. And he even took on cultural icon Disney. That's pretty ambitious and courageous. But he also proved that giving parents control of their kids, having strong support for the law and order people, and giving people and businesses the freedom to do business and to live freely are winners. I mean, there's really nothing outside the norm here. It's just solid governance. His win was actually the largest victory of any governor's race in Florida in 40 years. He won counties like Miami-Dade by 11 points. Nobody wins. No Republican wins Miami-Dade. And he even won deep blue Palm Beach. I mean, just to get a glimpse of how he changed minds by his previous four years of work, just look at Duval County. Here, back in 2018, he lost. And he lost by five points. In 2022, he won by 12. That's a 17-point swing. And he went deep with his win. I mean, the coattails were amazing. Not only did Rubio easily win his Senate seat after a very robust challenge, but at every level, Republicans had stronger showings than in the past. I mean, here's an interesting statistic. In 2020, President Trump carried Florida by that slim margin of 2.2%, which was double his margin in 2016. But DeSantis enjoyed an epic win. Florida has 22 million people, and they have 28 congressional districts, and the Republicans now control 20 of those seats. All four of the new ones went Republican. Dig a little, and the results are even more impressive. For example, look at District 27. In 2020, Trump picked up a razor-thin victory of 0.3%, and that was in District 27. Yet, House Republican, this time, won that district in 2022 by 15%, 15% way outperforming Trump. Analyze each of the 28 districts in Florida, and they all show something similar that 2022 had a significant advantage when you compare apples to apples to 2020, when Trump was on the ticket. In fact, even in Democrat strongholds, like let's look at District 20, 
That improved by 8% for the Republicans, even though it's a Democrat stronghold. And if you take the whole state and do that same math, the average improvement for all 28 districts on average was 17.14%. That's in 2022. And that's versus when Trump ran in 2020. So he beat Trump and everyone else on average beat Trump by 17.14% in 2022 over 2020. No Democrat won anything statewide. They demolished the Democrats. I mean, Republicans took the agricultural commissioner, the, the treasurer, the attorney general, lieutenant governor, of course, governor, and they deepened their lead in the state Senate and the state house. So they have a trifecta with massive majorities in each chamber. And we could talk about commissioners and school board seats, but I think you're getting the point. They won big. So Florida went from toss up to total Republican dominance in a deep red state. Florida is representative of America as a whole, a large state. A number of its counties, in fact, are so representative that, um, and even some of their neighborhoods are so diverse that they are barometers for how a national election will turn out. Florida showed that good leadership's not wimpy. Good leadership isn't mean either. When DeSantis was attacked by the media, he was strong, but he, he used logical principles, and then he would just point to data. And then over time, he would point to his results. He won emphatically in a layered manner. And it didn't hurt that right when he got elected, he fired this really corrupt election official and he improved some election rules. Now, <clears throat> if it wasn't for Florida, New York and California, if you can believe it, the Republicans would not have a House majority. Florida contributed four new seats. The vote for DeSantis was an affirmation of what he's doing right. You know, he won 64% of the men and 53% of the women. That's pretty good for a Republican. And he dominated all education levels, unlike a lot of others. Republicans often don't get every education level here. He won people with less than a high school education, and he won people with advanced degrees in every category in between. And he won every area. This is very unusual. He won urban, suburban, and rural. He even got 45% of self-described independents. Now, that's up from 38% in 2018. Those typically vote Democrat about 60% of the time. So he made great strides here, and that makes all the difference. And this is really where the learning, in my opinion, is located. If I'm talking to you as a candidate, <clears throat> and let's say you were a candidate that just couldn't let go of 2020, like it or not, you can't win an election on a statewide basis in a purple state if you don't have a positive message. And it has to be strong enough that it outweighs whatever it is you're running against. I mean, moderates just don't go for it. To them, it sounds mean, if not scary, and maybe even angry. We're going to explore those seven personality compositions as it pertains to elections in the next podcast. But how did the Republicans in many places underperform so badly? Well, you dive into governor data in any of the purple states, and you find that if the winner is a Republican, he has to win a small percent of liberals, a large percent of moderate Republicans, and a very decent share of independents. Otherwise, he has no chance. That's how much the odds are stacked against him. And that's due to two issues. Number one, Democrats drive votes by group. And all things being equal, more independents vote Democrat than vote Republican. Those are the two issues. So let's look at the first issue first. Democrats drive the vote by group. 
You know, Republicans, they think of compelling an individual to vote. And going all the way back to John Adams, we learned from him that there should be some modicum of personal responsibility connected to the voting process. Otherwise, you just end up with a lot of voters who don't have any stake in the results of their vote. And all they're really looking for is for somebody to give them their property. Well, with this relatively new concept of mail-in voting, it has opened the door to get further away from the constitutional republic concept and move toward a full democracy. We're not a full democracy. We're a constitutional republic. And the Democrats are probably very happy about that right now because if we weren't a constitutional republic, since we won the majority of the popular vote, we should have won more House votes than we did. But we're a constitutional republic, and it's a good thing we are. And when you have a full democracy, that over time becomes a dictatorship. And that's because the guy who needs to win needs to promise to the masses the most things. And what he promises them is that he's going to give them stuff from people like you who earned it. So Democrats don't think of that individual and compelling him. They think of groups of voters. And they think of those groups as entities that just need to be conquered through strong tactics. And that's for the purpose of voter outcomes. They have teams tasked with generating votes from each of those groups. They'll go to people who would be highly unlikely to vote if it wasn't a super convenient, a homeless shelter, a group home for the mentally disabled. They'll go to a nursing home or a group of construction workers put into a van and driven to the local early voting location where they can register and vote at the same time and who are given little voter guides by their foreman as they get out of the van. Well, they'll, they'll capture a pocket of 45 votes from the construction site and a compartment of 100 from the nursing home, another 20 from the homeless shelter, and another 40 from the home for the mentally disabled. You know, Nevada's ranked 50th in election integrity by heritage. They evaluate all the things that are required to make a election smooth, seamless, transparent, honest. Well, back in the show up on election day era, there are supportable claims of workers who were put on a bus by their union boss. And they were literally checking the workers' names off of a clipboard. And this, of course, gave Clark County its reputation. But now you can register, vote, collect, deliver ballots in many cases with no verification, no citizenship proof, no identity in some cases, no proof of residence or eligibility. And since it's by mail, there are no observers ensuring that someone filled in her vote selection or whether she just signed the ballot after someone else filled it in for her. Could that explain why some of the Democrat candidates seemed calm in spite of the polls? They know that their leftist allies will scour the countryside to deliver thousands of small groups of votes. It's why Karl Rove used to say, if you're a Republican, you need to win by four. And, and maybe now it's more like six in some places. Democrats will take college kids, herd them into voting centers on campus, paid for with tax dollars for one stop, same day registration and voting. This time around, they had signs that said elected officials decide issues like abortion. And senators decide environmental issues. I mean, college kids live in a bubble, right? They don't feel that the economy, crime, immigration, national security, and parental rights are that big of a deal right now. But climate change and abortion, big time. 
There's nearly a thousand colleges nationwide that joined in a coalition to turn out college students and to get them to these voting centers that were set up on campus, election offices paid for with your tax dollars. So these roving vote collection centers never go to places where there's likely to be GOP voters. And with the mostly mail-in approach and the election laws creating such an accessible and convenient process and no real personal responsibility required, it just makes it easier for them to target and deliver those votes. When the election's close, the system where there's massive unsupervised voting can tip the scale. Voters have no problem. Democrats have no problem going after the vulnerable. If you sign up for food stamps, they register you to vote. And then they know exactly how to get and use those lists to make sure there's a ballot in your name. You know, the same is true with student financial aid, job fairs, prison release, every federal agency and program. They go after groups. Doesn't matter how small the group is, but it's always a multiple and sometimes a factor times a multiple of just going after individuals like Republicans. I mean, how else do you explain Senator candidate, now Senator elect Fetterman in Pennsylvania? I mean, he honestly can't put two thoughts together. And he beat a medical doctor in a Pennsylvania Senate race. Now, while Oz was trying to compel individuals to vote for him, Pennsylvania's Democrat machine was just working harder and smarter. They went to all those places where there are groups and generated votes. They even went to Western Pennsylvania and picked up pockets of votes there. And why is this a big deal? Well, those people had voted for Trump, but they were susceptible to the carpetbagger complaint. And they used that against Oz and it worked. Republicans just got caught flat-footed. On the one hand, I do understand how Republicans were voicing resistance to a loose voting system. On the other hand, it's not a very good get-out-the-vote strategy. I mean, Republicans were trying to win individual votes and concurrently oppose the new rules that opened the spigot for group recruitment, while Democrats just quietly went about their work. Now, if the election rules can't be changed without a trifecta, then Republicans have to figure out a way to win against this group strategy and employ one of their own. They'll have to learn how to bank votes early. That makes sense. You can then focus your geofencing from there, and then you can go after the guys who haven't voted yet. But we just watched the Democrats do that this time. But with the individual vote mantra in places like Arizona, suspicious Republicans didn't show up until election day. And you've probably read about the debacle in Arizona. The second issue is reaching out to moderates and independents. If I'm just talking straight to some of the candidates that underperformed, here's my exhortation. You don't have to compromise your beliefs, and you don't have to become less conservative. In fact, you can remain firm, as DeSantis has clearly shown. But be nice about it. If you're not a warm and fuzzy personality, that's okay. Just be so informed on the issues that you can manage any policy nuance that's thrown at you. That's kind of like DeSantis. And be inspirational about, inspirational about what it is you're going to do when you get to whatever office you aspire to. I mean, if you were running for Congress, follow the doggone commitment to America rather than just voicing your angst against the crime problem. You're just scaring people. Build an uplifting image of safe and clean streets. You know, I believe that some of those close congressional and gubernatorial races and senatorial races would have gone more the Republicans' way if they had just better focus here. And you know about 80% of that is tone. Can I back this up with data? Well, 
I think so. The Cook Political Report produces a lot of data, and they scored each contested Republican primary as a victory for either the traditional wing of the Republican Party or the part of the Republican Party that was explicitly supported by Trump. So when you include the states where Republicans enjoyed blowout wins, the Trump impact was helpful in many primaries, but an overall net negative of five points in the general election. And this study was done for congressional races all across the country. Uh, Cook controlled for how the district voted in 2020 and whether the district was an open seat or held by a Republican or a Democrat you know, and or an incumbent. And it still came up five points negative. That five points would have resulted in about 231 House Republican seats. Well, what about the Senate? Well, here we just look at raw numbers from the actual vote percent for Trump in 2020 in that state and the actual vote percent for the Republican senatorial candidate in 2022. The Trump effect was as follows. In Arizona, it was a negative five points. In Pennsylvania, a negative 3.2 points. And in Georgia, a negative 0.7 points within striking distance of winning both Arizona. Hey, well, they would have won Arizona and Georgia if you would give all those five points and 0.7 points to them. Part of the outreach to moderates is just a sensible sound that, that you have a ring of grounded thought. And you're not just screaming about something from the past. I, I mean, if, if you just think about it, what benefit is there? To continue the chorus in 2022 that the 2020 election was stolen, even if you can prove that it was. Uh, let's look at New Hampshire. Sununu won by 15.5 points, and the uninspiring Democrat senator beat that drumbeat against her Republican challenger, and she beat that challenger by nine points. That's a 24 and a half point swing. If the governor's race in Pennsylvania, uh, is an indicator. Here's what it looked like. The Democrat beat the Republican challenger by even more, 14.3%. Coming out against the 2020 election was a, a vote loser in the general election. In Georgia, the Republican gubernatorial candidate had distanced himself from Trump. He's not charismatic or even that articulate, not even all that likable, but he won by over seven points. And a chunk of those same voters did not vote for the Senate candidate in the same state, Herschel Walker. And he was heavily endorsed by Trump. But let's look at one more state that I think is kind of a clear, decisive indicator of what actually happened. And this is Ohio. Here, Mike DeWine, a 46-year politician. I mean, that's a long time to do anything. He won his reelection for governor. Now, he wasn't my favorite on all things COVID or freedom principles, but he's got some nice initiatives. He has some faith-based initiatives to help the community. He has what he calls a common sense initiative, CSI, to keep regulations reasonable and be pro-business. He has an initiative to help veterans. He calls Ohio a place of promise, a place that cares, and a place that works. Now, he's never going to win a Charisma Award, but he's Republican in most ways, just nothing fancy, not at all. You want to know how much he won by? More than DeSantis. No kidding. He got 63% of the vote, as opposed to Nan's 37%, his opponent. Now, I'm not saying that he's even all that energetic or magnanimous, but that's a 26-point spread. And in a state where two of the previous four presidential elections went Democrat and only went Republican under Bush and Trump by a razor-thin margin, in a state that was pretty doggone purple, 
Governor DeWine's election results pretty impressive, and it kind of shows the mood. If you give him a reason to vote for Republicans, you're going to get Republican vote. It's true that his opponent wasn't all that amazing. That's true. But still, 26 points in that same state while people were overwhelmingly voting for Mike DeWine. J.D. Vance, the senatorial candidate, won by six points, 6.5. I'm, I'm taking the win, but what happened to those 400,000 Ohioans that voted for the governor and did not vote for J.D. Vance? They voted for his opponent, Tim Ryan. No kidding. Tim Ryan, the Democrat candidate for Senate in Ohio, gets 400,000 more votes than Nan Whaley, the Democrat candidate for governor. What's going on here? I mean, just to drive the point home, even the Secretary of State, kind of a candidate that a lot of people sometimes just skip, don't even fill in the ballot for, won by 20 points. J.D. Vance won by six. I mean, he won, but he was heavily endorsed by Trump. And, and Vance is a newcomer to politics. And for the most part, he's actually a kindly, almost professorial type of a person. So those personality types that would be put off by some of the antics of Trump, but watched J.D. Vance debate, they might have warmed to him. Yet his performance is kind of like that football team that was up big in the first quarter and they only won by a field goal. I mean, Ohio cast 4 million votes this election cycle, and 10% of them voted one way for the governor and another for the senator. What could possibly explain the, mo the motivation for so many people to be so that decisive about splitting their vote? So if you're a candidate, how do you hold on to the blue-collar guys who loved Trump's audacity and the freedom principle guys who don't much like the establishment and press ahead with wins for the Republican Party? Well, number one, you've got to be authentic. Be their advocate. You can be untethered by antics. You can be sensible, reasonable, and have some decorum and still convey strong support and give them a voice. You can be artful. If you're a candidate and you make it through a Republican primary, you're all, you've already got the thoughtful and engaged Republicans. You're going to get the establishments. You're going to get the freedom guys. Uh, you're going to get Republicans. They're going to vote for you as long as you don't compromise your principles. So to win in the general, again, you don't have to compromise your principles. You just need for people to believe that you're for them. So you adopt a tone, and you really should do this all throughout, but it's an uplifting tone. I mean, you want to entice moderate Republicans and the independents to vote for you, it's going to have to include that tone. Number three, you're effective. Just propose things that are easy to understand, pro-family, pro-freedom, pro-business, pro-safety, and then be excellent as a person. Be a person who's kind and respectful enough to astutely shoot down the opposition with common sense solutions. You know, some states did exceptionally well for Republicans across the board. They did. And others were a massive disappointment. The common denominator, just based on data science, for the losers is when those candidates made looking back to 2020 a cornerstone issue. And they did it with a tone that sounded angry and to some people, even scary. Moderate Republicans and independents just don't respond to confrontation that well. Even though that wasn't the intent of many of them, they interpret that tone as being against things versus for people's freedom and prosperity. And if you want to win, you need to be for their freedom and for their prosperity. God bless you and to your freedom. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Ferris Show your five-star rating. See you next time.